Thanks, Lauren. Well, uh, I, I did want to say at the start of this uh, that if uh, you'd like to say hi after the service, I'll just hang around up the front and please feel free to come up and talk um, if you'd like to um, chat about anything to do with uh, work and faith. Well, um, we're looking at Isaiah 35, uh, five days before Christmas. I don't know how you're feeling, um, but <laughs> it has been stressful and particularly more stressful this year, looking at the queues of people in Sydney, trying to get out of Sydney uh, before they potentially get locked in. Um, it's just a very, very different Christmas this year. And so uh, I hope this message today will help you navigate uh, the next few days. If I uh, ask the person on the street to, to uh, describe a prophet from the Old Testament to you, they probably have, you know, an old man with a scraggly beard with a highly strung personality and a love of the morbid and a big sign, clutching a big sign saying the end is near, you're all doomed. That would be the picture, I think, on the street. And nothing could be further from the truth when you go to the book of Isaiah. Now, sure, Isaiah said some, uh, some pretty dark things about God's people up until we get to chapter 35, but it's nothing that wasn't already obvious to them. Uh, as people, they knew that their leaders and their kings had failed them. Their country was split in two. Assyria was overrunning the north. So all their religious activities and their fervent prayers had failed. Um, and they could not secure a, ha a happy future. And Isaiah spoke into that. And he knew that their land and he knew that even their homes uh, would soon be ripped from them. And he knew that their government had failed them, that they'd looked to. He knew that... Um, their religion was a sham. And so in chapter 35, we get this shaft of light that sort of shines into the middle of all this darkness and breaks through the despair. And we get a picture of joy. And the joy is really in three parts. And I want you to try and remember these three parts. The first is there's the joy of transformation. There's the joy of having your senses reawakened. And there's the joy of returning to home base. So the joy of transformation, the joy of having your senses reawakened, and the joy of returning to home base. I love living in uh, South Australia because we get four pronounced seasons, unlike some other parts of Australia. And I ride into the city most days, and so I get to see through the parklands and through looking up at uh, Mount Lofty Ranges there, um, I get to see how the seasons are changing. So at the moment it's all, you know, sort of brown and yellow and... Um, you know, a, a little bit different <laughs> to, um, to what it looked, uh, you know, a few months back in spring when it was verdant and green and looked like England um, in parts. But I love it in winter too when I ride into the city and all the trees, are just the deciduous trees are skeletal and they just stand out against um, the green in the background. And I love spring uh, when all the blossoms come out. Uh, around the city streets and on the suburban streets. And that transformation of the seasons, it never um, fails to evoke some sort of wonder in me. Now, you may not be, you know, a botanical sort of person, so let me try and explain this another way. I think we get a joy sometimes in transforming, in seeing our, children's tra uh, seeing our children transform before our eyes as they grow up. So last year, and that just feels like a decade ago, um, I joined, my wife and I joined our daughter and her husband in Paris for a week. And uh, we got to 
run around with them and see the sights and do all that sort of thing. And the funny thing was for me, we'd done that when she was nine years old, and she went back to exactly the same spots that we'd been to when she was nine, but this time with her husband, and showed him all these things. And I found myself, I caught myself several times just looking at her, thinking, she's a woman, she's a wife, she's grown up now. I remember you in this place, and you were this big, and, and uh, you know, it was amazing sense of joy and privilege to be able to do that and see those snapshots in the same uh, place. I wonder whether you can recall for yourself a moment of inexpressible joy. Joy that was associated with change and transformation. Have a listen to Isaiah, uh, verses 1 and 2 again, and feel this joy. He says, The desert and the parched land will be glad, the wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Leb Lebanon will be given to it and the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. So Isaiah promises that things that are wasteland at the moment, things that only the jackals can live in, will be transformed into paradise. What a contrast. And if you can imagine it, the prophet says, just think, just think about Mount Carmel. And there's a picture of Mount Carmel there. It's the most verdant ridge in the whole of the Middle East. It's just a contrast to everything we think about what the Middle East is like. And he says, imagine Mount Carmel and put that in the middle of the desert and you've got what God can do. I'll make a desert look like that. So huge cedars of Lebanon, prolific wildflowers jostling for space. And four times in a couple of sentences there, he describes this as joy. Joy. There's a real joy and excitement and a gladness that follows any radical transformation. If not, why do, why do people go and show you the photo of what the house looked like before they did the renovation and then after? You know, we get bored with it. But the, they, the reason they show it to you is because they want you to see how bad it was beforehand so that you can appreciate how great it is now. That's the principle of before and after shots. And Isaiah, up until this chapter, has painted the before picture. And it's stark and it's bleak, the situation of God's people. And they must fully understand the gravity of that situation and of sin before they can enter into the joy of God transforming them. And if you were to ask the hidden ingredient that brings about that change, well, Isaiah would tell you it is God coming into the desert to change it. God coming into the desert brings a reversal and a renewal. And if you trust anything else, the desert just stays the same. Trusting God, the results are simply breathtaking. God says he will come and he says, I'll reach you, you don't have to reach me. This is Christmas. This is the story of Christmas. God takes the initiative. God makes the plan. God works out how to fix things. Not us trying to desperately claw towards him. I um, was introduced to a man through a lifestyle of heavy drinking um, who'd eroded his relationships over the last few years. Um, 
He, he basically, his wife couldn't trust him and kicked him out of the house. His kids were scared of him. He was unbelievable drinker. And he, he tried to take his life. He tried to top himself because of all this. You know, his, his work was failing and so on. And he remembered that he knew a Christian, so he got in touch with them. And that person had the sense to meet up with him regularly and support him as he started to go to AA and started to read the Bible with him. And although that man's got a lot to overcome, he's got a really genuine relationship with Jesus now. And you can see that Jesus is overhauling every square inch of his life. And it's joy. It's honestly, it's joy to come away from a coffee with him. Has Jesus come into this world and transformed you? Do you believe that he can continue to change and transform you and the people around you and your family and your friends and your workmates by this time next Christmas? Because when God comes to people, he transforms. Do you believe that? Because Christmas reminds you of that. There is a joy that God wants us to treasure and nourish. And the way that we do that is by never forgetting what we looked like before God came to us and remembering how bad the situation was when we were cut off from God and all his goodness. We're like a parched wasteland. But when he finally returns, that transformation he's begun will be complete. Listen to Paul. The apostle, he says, here's the mystery, we'll all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the perishable will be clothed in the imperishable, and the mortal will take on immortality. Or he says again in Philippians, we eagerly await a saviour from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies, so that they will look like his glorious body. The joy of transformation. Nothing in the world that you try and look for will ever deliver you that. And then in verses 5 to 7, Isaiah talks about the senses reawakened. He talks about blind people seeing for the first time in their lives and, and deaf people really hearing and lame people not just being able to walk but just jumping around like deer and people who cannot utter a word now shouting out of their lungs. And he then returns to that picture of the desert. And now the desert is a gushing torrent of water. Life-giving water flooding across it. Now I've got a picture there of Lake Eyre and flood. And we know as Australians what it's like for the water to hit the desert. And um, here, you know, it's not restricted. It's not measured out responsibly with drippers and tap timers. But it's just everywhere, flowing everywhere. Over the thirsty ground, water gushing forth over the burning sand, he says, streams in the desert. And he rolls these pictures of sickness and the picture of the desert and the wilderness together because both of them have a whiff, a whiff of death about them. One is wasted senses, one is wasted land. And only God can give life back to that. I found a picture of a boy who um, was hearing his grandfather for the first time in his life uh, when he was given a bionic ear implant. Look at the joy on that face. 
the joy of senses reawakened, restored, renewed, sharpened, heightened by God. And that's what the prophet promises his listeners. Look at the first coming of God in Christ and you'll see people dramatically reawakened in their senses. In fact, so much so that they borrow from the Old Testament to explain what's happening. In Mark chapter 7, the crowds, the people were overwhelmed with amazement. Jesus had done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. And Jesus, trying to encourage John, the Baptist in prison, he says, go and tell him this, report back to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. So you read those Gospels and look at Jesus' interactions with human beings and you see people really seeing, really hearing and he uses his power to physically heal them as a picture of what he could do to the whole person should that person yield themselves to God. And Jesus' ministry is like a little partial down payment. It's an, it's a, a, an appetizer, a delicious morsel that you get before you have the main meal to remind you that it's coming. When Jesus spoke to the woman at, at the well, what did he say to her? He said, everyone who drinks this is going to be thirsty again. But if you drink the water that I can give you, you'll never thirst. It'll be like a permanent spring that bubbles up within you in abundance to eternal life. So Jesus brings quality to life and, and it oozes joy in the recipient's he heightens our senses so that we can really see and really hear and we can really soar through this world. And if you're a Christian, that's an amazing process to watch in another human being. I mean, that, you should hunger to look for that in this world. Many years ago now, my father-in-law started talking about some visits he was having from the local minister. And we sort of listened. He was interstate. Um, but with each phone call, it was increasingly clear to us that there was a dawning realisation of God. The lights were somehow coming on and uh, he was having an aha moment in his 50s. Nowadays, if we're together as a family, he always says grace, always leads the family in prayer. And when we celebrated his 90th birthday a couple of months back, all the tributes eventually found their way back to talking about his faith in God, even from the non-Christians. There's an incredible joy, isn't there, in seeing someone's senses reawakened to the things of God, especially when they're people you know in your own life, and you think, how could it happen to them? It's just phenomenal. And that's eclipsed only by the final picture that Jesus gives us when he returns to this world. And he says in Revelation 7, Never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not scorch them by day, for the Lamb is at the centre of the throne. He'll be their shepherd, he'll lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eye. Now in a year when world travel has basically ceased, um, 
All we're getting is repatriation flights. I don't know whether you watch, but when a plane hits the sky, I go, oh, a plane. It's just an amazing experience to see planes. But um, I want you to take a trip down memory lane here with an old ad that Qantas put out several Christmases ago. Here's the goal of what the ad was trying to do. They, they worked out they wanted to get five real, live, authentic people and track them as they made a homecoming back to Australia. So the ad is real. It's real people, it's real quantum stuff, all captured in time. And it was trying to get you to understand the pull of home. Have a look at it. A window breaks down a long dark street. And a siren wails in the night That's all right I have you here with me And I can almost see Through the dark there's a light If you knew how much this moment means to me and how long I've waited for your touch and if you knew how happy you are making me oh I never thought I'd love anyone so much it feels like and they nailed it. <laughs> that, that feeling uh, that Australians get, uh, perhaps because we are a long, long way away uh, when, when we go to the Northern Hemisphere or whatever, but uh, uh, that sense of joy that Australians feel after being overseas for a while and finally being able to travel home. And ironically, in verse 8, of Isaiah, that is the sense that he wants to convey to us. He describes a highway, a way of holiness, and it's no goat track, it's, it's a raised road, straight to, straightforward to navigate with no dangers lurking along the path. It's a highway and it's built for travel and that highway is Isaiah's equivalent of Australian seeing the tail of the Qantas plane at the airport and knowing that they're nearly halfway home. God promises to these soon-to-be-displaced people that he will get them home. And that is the joy of returning to the place where God is in residence. 
And if you think about Christmas, what we celebrate at Christmas is Jesus tunnelling away through to us to get us back home. He makes a highway, he forges a path, he tunnels through the darkness to break into our world and he, he gets an escape route in place so that we can be taken back to heaven. More than anything else, God wants us to travel that highway home. Uh, if you listen to Jesus' words, he says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back. And I'll take you to be with me. Now, the first coming of Christ forges a highway between heaven and earth. And if you walk on that highway, you're safe. But if that Qantas ad has tugged a little bit at your heartstrings, then multiply that by a gazillion and you've got what you'll feel when you arrive home in heaven. And it won't be the pearly gates. It won't be the streets of gold. It will be relationship that makes it a joy. God at the head of the welcome table. Revelation 21 says, Now the dwelling of God is with people and he will visit them? No. He will dwell with them forever. Heaven is the uninterrupted bliss of seeing God face to face across the table, no longer crudely through a mirror. Now Isaiah implores us in verse 4, because we know that, Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. And just prior to Jesus' birth, his uncle, filled with God's spirit, prophesies these words, praise, to the, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and he has redeemed his people. And the final words of Jesus in the book of Revelation... He says, Behold, I am coming soon. And the apostle who pens the vision replies, Amen, come, come Lord Jesus. So Advent is the celebration that we're in now of remembering that God came to us. He came to us at Christmas to encourage us that he's not the sort of God who lacks the commitment to come back and pick us up. This is not wishful thinking. It's not a fairy tale. It's not just some good, you know, vibes that you have in your head. God will come because he's done it already once in this world. He came to initiate a rescue. He'll come again to complete the operation. God will come. He'll save those who are longing for his appearing. And that's the powerful message of the Bible it's one that should be on our lips. God will come, and our great danger is that all the noise that's going on around us at the moment will cancel it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says the celebration of Advent is, the only, pos is only possible for those who are troubled in soul, who know themselves to be poor and imperfect, and who look forward to something greater to come. Let me tell you that again. Those who are troubled in soul, um, those... Uh, who see themselves as poor and imperfect, 
and who look forward to something greater to come. Now, is that a summary or not of what most of the world is feeling at the moment? Of any year, they feel shackled, as we talked about before, shackled to this pandemic and everything that it's stopping them from doing. What a perfect year to stand out and tell people as Christians what Christmas means to you. There's joy in being transformed when God comes. There's a joy in having your senses reawakened. And there's joy in travelling on the right home, the right road home. And that, my friends, is much more important than a never-ending pack of Tim Tams. Pure joy. So let me ask you one last question. What's squeezing the joy for you? What's squeezing that joy? Broken relationships, distraction, suffering, regrets, uncertainty, addictions, sickness, stress, busyness. As a preacher, I don't want to see you robbed of that joy. This Christmas. Feel the joy. God will come again to save and he'll take you home. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, at your first coming into this world, you sent prophets ahead of you to ready your people. So make us ready so that at your return to judge the world, we will be found to be a joyful people in your sight. And especially as we move into a very different Christmas in this world. Amen.